Okay. James. Who has, who's read through James since we've been going from start to finish? Phenomenal. I'm, I'm reading through it time and time again, and I tell you, I am being... It, this take of James has completely changed the way I've read James in the past. I've, I'm seeing things I've never quite seen before. There's, there's revelation that God is revealing in areas that I've, I've never quite seen before. You know, as we're sitting there during worship and we're singing, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, uh, something unusual popped into my head, but there's a, um, a really famous comedian who was a, a drug addict and is now off drugs and he's on this exploration to find purpose and meaning and he, he's quite a funny um, a funny guy because he, he, he draws from all kinds of different things every different religion he's drawing from in his attempt to find meaning to find a spiritual manifestation of purpose in his life and one of the things he talks about which is quite interesting he was on a podcast that I listened to he talks about yoga, that he spends the first few hours of his day in yoga in this extreme chase for something, that he's looking for a spiritual reason to be alive. Then I saw another guy, there's another guy called the Iceman, who every day goes and dunks himself in gallons of ice and spends half an hour to an hour, 45 minutes to two hours in ice to freeze his body to get himself to a euphoric state where he can see into a spiritual realm. Then you go and you look at somebody who, um, what they call chasing a dragon, when you, when you take um, drugs like heroin, where you're seeking for this spiritual awakening, this spiritual alignment where you spend time and time and time and time again. And as I was sitting there in worship, it, it, I, I felt this question of what extremes will people go to in order to find a spiritual purpose? Then I started thinking to myself, but then, as Christians, we get given the freedom to walk into the realm of God, into, with, with praise and thanksgiving, we get to walk in and be face-to-face -face with the Creator. We straight away get an understanding of our spiritual awakening. We get a, a, a manifestation of a spiritual meaning, and yet we are so seldom to go to that place. I thought, I was standing there thinking, man... This worship is incredible and I can just really sense something. And then I started feeling this, this well, how, how eager am I? I was thinking about myself. How eager am I to come to this place? Would I spend the first three hours of my day in a bucket of icy water because God asked me to to come into his presence? Now, look, don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Those things are worldly and are, uh, are demonic and are chasing the wrong thing. But I start questioning God, how eager am I to know you? How eager am I to bring myself to that place? How eager am I to want to be face to face with you? Am I like Moses? What have I climbed that mountain? What have I hid behind that rock and said, Jesus, God, please, just a glimpse. Give me just a glimpse. Would I, would have I done that? I struggle to get out of bed some mornings, let alone get out with joy and encouragement and excitement. And that's okay from time to time. But I have to begin to question myself, how eager, God, am I to be in your courts? Is it better to be one day with you than a thousand elsewhere? I know I'll say that, but is it? Am I eager to come before you and put aside everything else that's going on because I just want to be with you? And as God does, this leans into where we're at in James. 
this leans into this pull between faith and work, this, this challenge that we've had, especially as charismatic and Pentecostal Christians, where we shy away from this verse because it makes us feel uncomfortable because we don't want to be caught in the law. We want to come out into grace, which is true and good, but we have to challenge this verse because it's in the section of the, of the, the Bible that we call the New Covenant. It's written as plain as the rest of it is that there will be no faith without works that have to be matched together. Before I start, I want to remind you who James is writing to. Because sometimes we'll pluck a verse out, but we forget the context. And I think, as Dave said, this is a father, James, writing to a people to say, come on, let's go, let's do something. Now remember that this is a church in Jerusalem that was running away, was, was in fear for their life because Saul was going door from door, ripping Christians out and killing them. It was a time not long after Jesus had, had ascended and uh, uh, the disciples had gone out and started preaching in Jerusalem. Thousands were being saved and the Jews were unhappy, the Romans were unhappy because there was a revolt starting to happen. So they were hiding in their homes, afraid that if they made the wrong decision, they could be killed. So they were a people who didn't want to go and do anything for the gospel. They were happy staying in their four walls, comfortable and praying because it's scary out there. And James pens this letter. James says in James 2, 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if anyone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So in we have a, a group of people hiding in their homes, hiding from the potential uh, persecution of the church, hiding from the Romans, hiding from the Jews. And James, in his letter to them, says, what good is your faith hidden away in your homes when nobody else can see it? It will not save you. Now the challenge for this verse is that word save him. We get confused and so many doctrines and theologies have been built on this verse because it leads us to a place where it says, see, if you don't go out and operate, you won't be saved. Our English translation, I've said this four squillion times, we have to work through what the words mean because sometimes the translators translated words with their own thoughts in place, their own doctrines, their own theology. And I love a particular Bible. I love the ESV. It's my favorite. That doesn't make it the best or without error. It has translational error in this, as does the King James, as does the NIV, as does the NLT. They all have. That's why I like to read across multiple. And I like to, to pray when I read a verse before I jump to a conclusion. God, what are you saying? But this verse here is so interesting because it says it will not save you. But what I have to do is explain what I, what I preached. I didn't know it was going to lean into this so well. But what I preached about, about the difference between sin, the difference between we no longer have a sin nature and we, and we need to go on and stop sinning, right? The difference between the two, that when we get saved, our spirit man gets saved, gets hidden in Christ, becomes one with Christ. But we still have to navigate, as Paul says, from the renewal, the transformation of our mind, which is our soulish realm, our mind, will, and emotions. That makes sense, right? If you haven't heard me preach on that, it was about three weeks ago that I preached on that, just before we went into James. So you have to understand that, that James, in this place, he's not talking about 
saved, going to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying go and do those works because that will take you to heaven, right? That's the old system. That's the law. That's the thing that, that has been fulfilled that we've come through. That's not the grace that Jesus came and preached. So before you read this verse and then take it in to a doctrine or a theology, you have to put it up against what Jesus was preaching and what Jesus was bringing forth. And it goes against what the other disciples preached and what Jesus preached. So we go, then we must be interpreting it wrong. Oftentimes we have to look, how are we reading it? But James is not saying, if you don't have works, you will not be saved. What he's saying here is that if you don't operate in the works of the things God's asked you to do, you will not come into fullness and into wholeness with him. That word save there that gets used is the Greek word sozo. It's the, it's a, the, if you're a Strong's person, it's G4982, but it's the Greek word sozo. Now, a good lot of you who have been in charismatic or Pentecostal churches will go, sozo ministry. Yes, that's what this is talking about. The sozo ministry that people do or prayer for sozo is prayer, that word means this, to deliver, to protect, to heal, to make whole. To deliver, to protect, to heal, to make whole. It's used 110 times in the New Testament. Why is this important? Because every time we see the word saved, we have to take in and understand what is it saying? What is the word that's being used? So that word sozo means to make whole or to protect from something that is trying to hurt or pull you apart. So when you go for quote-unquote sozo ministry, and I'm not going to get into whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, when you go for that ministry, that's somebody praying for you and asking God to make you whole or to protect you from something that is attacking you. Does that make sense? So what James is saying is that as we go through our Christian walk, as we navigate the things God's asking to do, if we're only sitting at home with faith in our hearts but no work in our hands, we are open to being attacked and robbed and stolen from. But what James is saying is that when we step out of our homes, when we step out of our own little realm that we've created and we start to operate in the work he's given us using our hands to a plowshare, that we actually start operating in his kingdom and in the protection and wholeness that he brings. Does that make sense? So there's times where we have to begin to, to get ourselves up. You know, we, we say, I'm, I'm really being attacked right now. I just want to close the doors. I want, to, I want to stop everything from coming in. I just want to be on my own. And what happens is that person often gets more and more and more and more attacked. More things start coming. More stuff starts falling apart because they've closed down everything from around them. They've, they've put their hands to no work. They've sat on their hands. And James is saying, if you operate in this place, if you operate with both faith and works in unison, we start operating into the kingdom that God is asking us to advance. We start operating using the tools that we've been given to actually bring about his kingdom, to see his will being done. I always find this interesting when somebody's in a hard time, when somebody's struggling often the first thing they will stop is their ministry. And I don't mean just coming to church. I mean whatever way they minister to people. But they very rarely stop their work. If someone's struggling, very rarely will they go, well, I'm, I'm just going to take two weeks off to, to relax. 
because I need to I need to focus myself. Often the first thing we stop is the place we're serving. If we give meals to the homeless or we, you know, we run a Bible study or we, we're teaching some, some young guys who are coming up or whatever it is, the first thing we go, I, I'm too busy, I'm too, there's too much happening, I'm going to stop all of that, I'm going to close myself in, I'm going to focus on the things that will get me by. But what James is saying is that, no, that work that you're operating in is bringing you in to a place of sozo, is bringing you in to a place of wholeness, to a place of protection. That what I've given you to do what I've put in your hand, like Moses. Moses, I don't have the, God, I can't do this. I don't have the strength. God says to Moses, Moses, what's in your hand? It's a staff. He throws it at the ground. It becomes a snake. He's saying, I've put something in your hand that will bring you into the protection you need, will bring you in to the place you, you need to be. Because in you, you have the tools to do what I've asked you to do. And in that doing, there is sozo, protection, wholeness, deliverance. James is not speaking about salvation into heaven. We have to understand that. He's not saying you will be saved unto heaven. He's saying you will operate in a place of sozo, a place of wholeness and deliverance. We need to understand this and not just pluck this verse out and use it to either defend or reject our position, but understand, God, what is James saying to us here? What is he saying? Now remember, remember, James is writing to a people who are being persecuted. He's writing to a people who were hidden in their homes. He's writing to a people who could have been killed or beheaded because the Jews and the Romans were after them. That's who he's writing to. And he's saying, if you continue to operate in the things I've given you, there will be protection. There will be deliverance from that. There will be wholeness from that. But if you shrink inside, if you close the doors and you take yourselves away from the mess that's happening, I cannot bring you in because you've stopped the flow. You've stopped the river toward me. Does that make sense? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what Hebrews designs, says that faith is. Thanks, babe. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Without any hands on work, it will not bring us in. The faith is the beginning to see where God is leading us. That when we have hope for something, there has to then be an outworking that brings that hope forth. Okay, so let's say this for example. My wife and I are, we have immense faith that we will one day buy a home. Okay, I've used this example before. But in that faith, I can't be out spending willy-nilly and walking around like it's just going to happen. I've got the faith, right? There has to be a work, an action that actually mimics my faith and leads me into that place of wholeness and protection. So what Jess and I then start to do now is we say, we have faith. I have faith that we'll get a home, no question about it. But I now have to start to work toward that goal with the little that I can do and the, the amount of things God's given in me. Now, he might fast, that, fast track that faith, right? I might save a penny or $2 and someone might give me five. Now I've saved seven. Now, my faith is being matched by what God is pouring into me, but I never stop walking toward the goal that he's put in my heart. 
but I have to match it. I have to match it with actual works in my hand that God can then bless into. I'll give you another example. This one happens all the time. People will come and say, Ben, I have a goal or a dream or a vision to help struggling single mums. I'm using struggling single mums. It's not always that people come with that, but that's my example. Struggling single mums. I say, awesome. They're like, yeah, I want to have this halfway house where um, mums can come and stay and they're protected and, and they're well looked after and we can feed the kids, we can look after the kids, we'll have mining service. I go, that's awesome. That's so exciting. Where are you at in that journey? How many mums are you helping now? And I go, oh, well, I don't have the house yet. You know, but you've, there's, a, there's a faith. There's a thing that you're hoping for. There's a thing that you have your eyes set on. But what action are you putting in place here? How many mom, single mums do you know? Oh, I just know one. Okay, how are you helping them? Oh, I didn't know where else to start. Start there. Get that one single mom, that heart, that dream, that cry call that's in you to build the halfway house is phenomenal. Don't let that die. But start walking step by step toward it. Bring that one single mom in. I've got one. What are you doing? I'm helping her. I've brought her in. Where I'm caring for her. I'm this, I'm that. And watch what God will do in that because now he says, now you've got one, here's another one. Okay, now I've got three. Now I've got 10. Now I've got 100. Hey, I need a home. God, I'm, 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 I'm gonna start saving now. I'm gonna a- start asking for dono- donations to buy a home. I've got 5,000. God's just given me 50. Here's, here's the home. Every step that I'm doing, I'm walking towards with my hands the thing that God's put in my heart that I can see in faith. This gets really tricky as we go along our Christian walk because often we get caught in things where we'll say, I'm sick, but I have the faith that I'm gonna be healed. Yes, that is phenomenal. I have hope for something that I cannot see. But I've also got to start stepping toward that faith. So I have to get out of bed. I've got to go and see a doctor and see what's being said. Ask God, is this where I should be? I've got to step in where this work starts get put, starting to be put in place with my faith that God is still stretching me in that journey. Is this making sense? Fantastic. If you have faith to see, to be a teacher of people, to teach the scriptures, start teaching with your neighbor, with your son, with your friend, with someone here. Start going through the scriptures with somebody. You don't have to be, I want to be a preacher and stand in front of thousands. That can be a faith goal for the end, but start where you're at. Start small. If you've got faith to buy a house, start saving. If you have faith to see hundreds get saved, start preaching to the one. Start explaining the gospel to one. You can't see multitudes. I think Billy Graham has a phenomenal story about uh, how he walked his journey. He knew what God had showed him. He'd been given a, a vision. He'd been given a goal, and he started walking towards that. We've been of late. Jess and I have been given some phenomenal prophecies. And sometimes I get wrecked, and I go, God, I, I don't see how that happens. I don't even, is this insane? But they've been like the same thing from two or three people that don't know each other. And I'm like, God, what are you saying to me? I I can't see that happening. But because I have hope for you and I have hope for the dream, I will step toward it in a little bit. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll shift something to there and I'll take another little step 
and another little step until we get to the place where we look back and God says, I called you into this from the beginning. But you don't get a ripped six pack on the first week in the gym. And maybe you don't ever, but I'm giving it my, my, best, my best crack. Thank you, Coco. See, faith. But I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. James 2, 15, 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James is not saying it's all works. He's saying it's a unison of the two. It's works and faith. It's works towards a faith that brings about the kingdom of God. See, I have faith. I have faith that what God is doing in this house is changing a city. Now, I, I can be looked as a, as a crazy person for that because it's, it's not as big or it's, it's not as this or it's not as that, but I have faith for that, which gives me the strength and the ability to continue to do the little work that I need to do. That when I wake up in the morning, it's my faith that strengthens me to complete my work. Without my faith, this becomes mundane and awful and too hard. I've been chatting with a lot of church leaders over this last sort of six months, a lot. It's actually been quite powerful the way guys are starting to come together to talk through this season and this time. And I've said almost the same thing God reveals is, why did you get into this? What was the dream? What was the vision? What was the faith you saw in this? Because if we've forgotten that, if we lose faith, the work becomes too hard. The work becomes too difficult. We lose our way. We lose our path. We lose whatever it is. It's like when you first get into business and you see this dream, you see this amazing thing, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to make squillions of dollars. I'm going to help squillions of people. It's going to be fantastic. And then you get to about year one and a half and you've got bills to your eyelids and you've got You've got people in your organization that are stealing from you or hurting you. And you start going, this is too hard. But you have a moment where you flick back to that original dream. You have a moment where you flick back to that vision that was given, that idea that was given, that faith draw, and you go, it's not too hard. Because look how much we've achieved. Look at what we've done in this short period of time. God is good. I'm going to stay my path. My work now becomes vitalized. I go to the office with a skip in my step because I know where I'm going. That's faith and works. That's what James is saying. But he says you cannot just give your words. You cannot just give your faith to somebody because it doesn't put food in their mouth. It doesn't make them feel confident and supported. And I think this is probably one of the most difficult things that's happened for the church in the West is that we actually don't know how to look after each other well. That when I say to Maddie, hey Maddie, how are you? He goes, I'm good. Because he goes, Ben doesn't really have the time for me to tell him that I'm not good. And if he does, I don't really know how to explain if, he's, if I'm good or not. So we're not going to have a pause and a stop. So I'll pat him on the back. Good on you, brother. Enjoy your time. But when we have relationship, when I know my brother 
And I said, hey, how are you? He goes, oh, good. I said, no, you're not. Because this has changed in your character. You don't have a smile like you normally do. What's going on? See, what we did in the Western church was we allowed that door greeting to be the only connection we have. We didn't take it further. We didn't take it into our homes. We didn't take it around our dining rooms. We didn't take it onto the golf course or whatever sporting activity we do. We didn't take it to those places, so we made it hard. So people go, well, the church never cared for me because I came in with an issue with a list as long as my arm and no one, no one talked to me about it. But the difficulty in that is I don't know that you're struggling unless you tell me. I can't help you unless you tell me. So what happens is James is saying, don't just give somebody a pat on the back. Don't just give somebody a, hey, how you're going? Actually help them. Use your hands to help them. Because that's where your faith gets turned into actions. That's where the actions can start to change somebody's life. But the other part of that is that we have to have faith that God's going to bring us through. We also have to have work that God is going to bring us through. Hey, Josh, I'm struggling. I have faith that God's going to help me, but I can't see past that. Can you help me? So it has to go both ways. We can't point the finger because there's always four fingers pointing back at us. We've got to start to ask God, God, I have faith that you're going to bring me through this financial decision. But is pride stopping the work from coming and allowing me to change? Is it pride that's stopping me from reaching out to Josh to say, bro, I need 50 bucks this week. I paid all my bills. I've got no food. Now, if in that spot, Josh says to me, oh, good luck, brother. I'll be praying for you. It's in that place where Josh's faith hasn't matched what God's asked him to do. So we have to walk this journey all the time, like James is saying, is he's saying your faith will look like something. Your love for that person will look like something. And we have to start to navigate what does that love look like? What does that faith being matched with work look like? I have a good friend of mine, and I, I love this guy to pieces. And he's not from here, so it's okay. I love this guy to pieces. But when he tells stories, he tells the biggest stories. And he, he's a guy who always wants to help you, and he'll tell you how he can help you. But when it comes to him actually helping you, it just falls apart, and he never makes it. So he'll tell you, I've, I've got that. I can do that for you. And you go, yes, he's going to do it for me. And you count on him. You put all your chips in his basket. You count on him. And that comes the time. And he could never have done it. He never had the thing you needed. He just wanted, he wanted it to sound good. But the trick is, is now I've learned that. And I know that. So often if he says to me, hey, bro, I'll help you with that. There's a little inkling in me that goes, he may not, might not come through. So have a little backup plan. And nine times out of the ten, I need the backup plan. Right, because his words don't match what his actions are. He is, he's trying to be genuine. He's trying from his heart to love me. but He loves me in his words, but when it comes to his actions, he drops the ball. That's, as Christians, how we need to be. We can't preach about love and then operate in a place where we're unloving. We can't preach about caring for people and then operate in a place where we don't care for people. Now, let me put a little preface on that because at times it's difficult for somebody to understand how to care for somebody. 
Sometimes I need Josh to tell me, hey, bro, I don't know how you're hurting. I need you to help me here. Because if I just bring you a, you know, a, a $50 note and you go, well, that's not what I needed. I needed time, not $50. And then I'm trying my best to help. But it needs to work between the two of us. It needs to work in a function where I say, hey, bro, I'm struggling. Can you help me? Yes, by all means. What do you need? I don't know, I just, I, I just feel dark, I just feel awful. Okay, come hang out with me. Or I, I, I can't pay my bills, okay, here's 100 bucks. See, when we start to work as a, as a unit who understand one another through relationship, we don't have to try and guess how I help Josh. I don't have to try and do the right thing. I'm not walking on eggshells. When he's hurting, I help him. When I'm hurting, he helps me. But what James is saying is there's got to be a match between the two. There's got to be this distinction between faith, I'm praying for you, I love you, and I, I honor you. But also, bro, how can I help? What can I do? Where can my hands be put to work? I thought that was a chair being pulled out. It's like someone's, someone's getting ready to have a sit down. So we have to start to draw. This is where... This verse right here is where the world has a warped perception on the church. Because the church hasn't been able, in a lot of cases, to adequately put their faith to work. And at times that's difficult, at times we don't know how. I don't know how this, this small body can put their hands, their faith to work in terms of a big city like the Gold Coast. Right? We don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars that we can go in and sow in. So I have to start asking God, okay, how can I help the city? All we have at the moment is faith to see the city move, but what's the work in my hand? What's the work in my hand? And that works the same way when we go into any house, any church, or on a Sunday morning where we go, God, I have faith that this place can go where you're telling it to go, but what's the work in my hand? What's the plowshare you've given me? What's the tools you've asked me to step in and to use? Rather than being quick to say, well, the church doesn't have this, or the group doesn't have that, or the people can't, or this isn't, or that won't. God, what is the work in my hand? I see the faith. I see the picture. I see what you've drawn. I can see into the unknown for this place. But what's the work in my hand? What's the plowshare? That's why my heart has been grieved over this last time because there's so many Christians and so many uh, ministers of the faith throwing stones at the church. And I go, but you can see the faith. You can see what God's calling her into. You can see where God's asking her to go. You can see what's happening, but you don't have the heart to say, what's the tools in my hand? Like Moses, God, I can't. What's in your hand, Moses? What's the work I've given to you? And I challenged a guy just recently who's been posting a lot of stuff, and I said, bro, I, I, where, where are you helping? And he looked at me with a tear in his eye. He said, that's a great point. I've been out for so long. And I said, so then don't, don't throw stones. Get a plowshare in your hand. Ask, how can I help? Put yourself before God and say, God, what is the work you want me to do? What ground do you want me to rip up? What, what seeds do you want me to plant? What fruit do you want me to harvest? There are so many journeys along the growth and position of the church that God has asked you to a place for a reason. He's put you here or there 
or in this workplace or that thing for a reason. What God is the reason? What tool have you given me? What work is before me? James goes on to chapter 19, verse 19 rather. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What James is doing here is a very, very interesting poke to the Jewish people. Because he's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the traditional Jews, the ancient Jews used to do something. Every morning when they, wake, when they woke up, they would quote Deuteronomy uh, uh, 6 verse 5. They would say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And every night before they went to sleep, it's tradition for them to quote, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every day they would arise, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would lay their head at night, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James is saying, you know that verse. You know the words. You've said it twice a day your entire life. You know that. But yet when it comes to your understanding of God, the demons, they shudder at the power and mighty and their fear of him. They shudder. What takes place is a physical manifestation of their realization of God. What takes place for you is a memoried verse that you say at the beginning and the end of the day without any physical outworking. He's saying you've actually missed the point of that verse. You believe it, but you don't act upon it. Even the demons, the ones who are against the will of the Father, they act on that verse because it brings them to shuddering. It brings them to a place. Go, go with me, if you can, quickly to Acts 19. I spoke about this during worship a few weeks ago, but I just want to take you to it and show you something. Because what James is actually saying here is quite brutal. He's actually challenging the people that their faith is bringing about inaction. But even the demonic realm will bring about action in who they are. Acts 19, chapter 19, verse 11. It says this. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That even the demons that were in the man understood you don't carry what you say you carry because there is no revelation between what you think and what you have done in your hearts. 
They knew that they could hack apart at them because this Jesus that you say you know has absolutely no carry on over into the way you live your life, into the way you operate, to the way you move about in your day to day. What James is saying in this place is that you, you talk a good talk, but you don't walk a good walk. Your mouth doesn't align with your hands. And what happens is, especially in the Christian world, is that we know this book back to front. We know the words. We know the language. I can say the right things at the right time, but does this come down into my hands? Does this outwork through who I am, or am I just a clever guy who can read it quickly and regurgitate it in a time and a place that I need to? That's why I love when we get, when people get into um, arguments and they get angry about uh, a disagreement between the scriptures because you go, what is happening between what you're supposed to look like and what you look like right now? James is saying that even the demons, even the demons know and are afraid because you're cheating on your wife. Even the demons know and are afraid because you're watching something you shouldn't be watching. Even they understand the power that is held by the mighty Yahweh and it brings them to shuddering. It brings them to convulsion. Jesus goes on in, in, in Luke 19, 38 to 40 to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The stones know the power and glory of Yahweh. The demonic realm knows the power and the glory of Yahweh. The problem is the ones in between us. We fail to understand and recognize the power and glory of Yahweh. We fail to recognize just what it means to be in his courts and to be before him. That it brings even the demonic realm to shuddering. What does it do to us? What does it do when we say, God, I know you. I know you so much. And it doesn't always have to look like it makes you cry or it makes you wail or this or that. It's, it's not a spe specific thing that it makes you do, but it should move you to change. It should move you to look different. It should move you to actually have a physical manifestation in your life that looks like something. Because when our faith is matched with the work of our hands, when our faith is matched with who we are, it changes us. It changes us into Him. I think I, I think I preach this from here, but I heard a guy talk about the fact of, he said, how do I know somebody's a Christian? And he, he was a well-to-do speaker and he was up on a stage in front of thousands of people and he said, I was meant to be here at, at five o'clock this afternoon. He said, imagine, imagine if I showed up at, at 10, 10 past seven and I walked in the room and the guy who was hosting, whose church it was that was hosting him, he said, mate, where are you? You're supposed to be here uh, two and a half hours ago. He said, imagine if my, my reason for not being there was this. While I was on the highway driving here, my tire went flat, so I pulled over to change it. And as I was changing it, the nut on the car bounced across the highway. So I ran out to get it, and when I got it, I got hit by a Mack truck. He said, so it took me a little bit of time to pick myself up and dust myself off, change my tire, and then come in. That guy would look at him like, you're a goose. You, you got hit by a Mack truck, right? you'd be dead or you'd be in hospital. You wouldn't be here before us. 
See, what happens when we sing a song like Jesus, everything changes when you walk in the room, but then we stand there unchanged. We have to ask ourselves, did you really get hit by a Mack truck? Now look, please, it's, it's not my job, nor is it any of yours to, to determine whether the person across from you is saved or not. This is not about, I'm going to decide whether Matt is or isn't. This is about going to my knees and saying, Jesus, what does it look like for me? What does it look like for me? What does my faith look like matching my hands, matching my life? I know who you are. I know the power, the glory, the might. I know what you're calling me into. I know who you said I would be. I know what it looks like. But what's the match now in my hands to look like? What does it look like? If even the demons shut up because they know you, I want to know you. I want to know you more than they do. I want to have a deeper relationship with you more than they do. So what does it look like for me? And that's a journey that we're to be taken on. That's a journey that we're to walk into. And James doubles down. He says in James 2.20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Sorry, useless? (laughs) It's not youthless. There's youth in it. Useless. Just lost all the uh, zing that I had there on that line. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That when we operate in our faith only, without it being worked down to our hands, it becomes worth nothing. It becomes a good story, becomes a good tale. It becomes, it becomes something that God's not asked it to be. He then goes even further and he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The very walk up the hill, the very walk up the hill, which is Golgotha where Jesus died just for the record, but every step that he took up that hill was the faith that God was who he said he was being worked into actions in my hands. Sometimes I I don't like how, how much they don't give us, but I wish they gave us more of that walk. I wish we could see the agony in Abraham's heart. I wish we could hear some of the emotion where Abraham's going, God, I trust you, but are you serious? God, I understand who you are. I know I can see into the unknown for what you're calling me to. But this, as he walks, as he carries his boy, as his boy walks alongside him. See, that's faith being brought into action, being brought into works. God, I don't get this. I don't understand it. This is ludicrous. But you told me and I know who you are. I have faith that you're taking me to a good place. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. James takes it even further. And he says, he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messages and sent them out by another way. So we get Abraham, hero, father in the faith, loved God with all his might. And he challenges them to say his faith matched his works. 
But then you bring all the way over to Rahab, a prostitute who wouldn't have known or understood who God was. She says she had no faith. She didn't have faith that God was going to bring her through. Why? Because she wasn't living in that realm. She wasn't living in that world. Yet it was her works toward God that brought her into righteousness. Because when the two boys came, it would have been better for her. Two men came. It would have been better for her to say, I'm really sorry, I can't help you. But she risks her life. She lays down the scarlet thread. And she says, please remember me on the other side. Please remember me when you come through. You see, what God is saying is he's saying, show me what you do with your hands to me. And I will bring you more and more and more and more into who I am. More and more of the realm of me will you see. More and more and more. Do you know why I think some of these guys who, who the, the church often puts on a pedestal, we, we, we pump these, these big guys up, these prophets, these evangelists, we pump their tires up because we get encouraged by what they're able to achieve. But all of them tell the same story. I achieved little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. I just, I just got to a place, God, what are you telling of me? God, what do you have for me? Where have you put me? What have you put in my hands? And every time they operate in that, God gives them a little bit more. God gives them a little bit more. Where has God placed you right now to put your faith in alignment with your works to bring about the kingdom of God, to bring about his will? We have to carry both, both faith in him that he's bringing us in to the unknown. He's bringing us in and we have to have works in our hands that bring about the kingdom of God. Righteousness begets more righteousness. Positioning ourselves to be a place where we won't shrink back into our homes and go, I'll just settle here with my face. I'm pretty good. But we'll go, God, you've given me a time. You've given me a sphere of influence. You've put people around me. You've put tools in my hand. What am I to do with the little you've given me? And start there and watch him grow. Start there and watch him grow. Start there and watch him grow. He will pull you into more and more and more. Why? Because the more you operate in what he does, the further out the kingdom goes. And sometimes it's a little bit out from me the kingdom. I've spread it this much. But then I go a little bit further. Now I'm spreading it this much. And then a little bit further, my spheres get bigger. The things get bigger. More and more of God starts to step in to who we are. 26 says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. God has given us the faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, to see his kingdom come and to see his will be done. He's also given us the tools and the abilities in our hands to do our part. I can't do what Mary can do, but Mary can't do what I can do. That's why God talks about it as a body, talks about it as parts of the body, because Mary can't achieve what I can achieve. But I can't achieve what Mary can achieve. So you bring us together, we become a team, and now we fulfill the body. And then we bring Sean in, who can't do what either of us can do. Now there's three of us operating in three different spheres. That's why the body of Christ is so incredibly important. Because as we come together, we start to learn how to partner together. We start to learn how to say, Mary, I need your help on this. I need your relentless hours of prayer for me right now. Please. 
because I can't do it. Mary goes, I'm on it. God, how do I do it? What do I do? Give me the help. Hey, Maddie, I need you to sit with me and give me some of that prophetic insight you carry. Help me see what I can't see. Listen to my hurts, my pains, my struggles, my wins. Give me my blind spots that I can't see. See, but if Maddie just runs over to the hills and sits quietly on his own, well, I've got the faith, then we can never partner together. We can never operate as one body and achieve what God wants us to achieve. If Mary sits in a place where she goes, I, I, I'm useless, no one, no one wants me, no one can use me, I'm not going anymore, I don't want to meet up with people, I don't want to be a part of people's lives, then now we never ever get to build on a relationship and I get to step in and ask Mary, please help in this time. See, the importance of, of, of relationship in a body like this is so that we can get to know each other and lean on each other at times to forward the kingdom and to see his will come. That unity in the spirit I spoke about last week is to fulfill God's mandate. And we do that better as a team together, unified, working together, understanding each other's hang-ups, understanding each other's hurts and pains. There's times where I will go and ask Sean something particularly that I maybe wouldn't have asked Josh. Or there's sometimes I'll go, not because I'm looking for a specific answer, but because I know what's on their life. Or if I need help with something, I might call Josh or I might call Sean in a different time. Why? Because I understand who they are and I understand how we can work together. See, if someone needs help building a, a house, they're not going to call me. I, I'm okay with that. I can list stuff and I can carry stuff. But when it comes to building stuff, I just don't have, I'm not real good at it. But that's okay for me to operate in where, but what, what, what the problem is, is if I let that disqualify me from all works in my hands. God is saying your faith needs to be matched. Sorry, James is saying your faith needs to be matched with your works in your hands. What God's calling you into, outwork it. Like Moses, God, what is in my hand? 1 Corinthians 3, 9 verse 10, Paul writes this. For we, you and I, I'm finishing with this. For we, you and I, fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. We are master builders with God fellow workers so we don't sit in our homes and go God's going to do it God will do it yeah God will do it through the tools he gave you and through your work out there he's asking you to be a fellow worker with him God will achieve the things he's promised in you but the beautiful thing about a father is that he achieves it through a son when we become sons of him, he achieves it through us. I watch some of you dads get your kids to do things and I'm like, hey, just pick it up, you do it and it's done like five times faster. But watching the parents go, no, I want my son to learn the school skills. I was walking with my brother and my, my niece and he was letting her walk down the stairs and it took us 20 minutes to get down the stairs. And I'm like, just pick her up, come on, let's go. But as a father, he's going, no, I want to watch my daughter succeed 
down the steps. That's what God's doing with us. I've given you a faith to see a task done. But boy, I want to see you achieve it. I want to see your hands achieve it. So it, we, we shift this whole verse from being about, oh, I've got to earn my salvation. No, God wants to see the promises he gave you outworked by your hands to glorify him. So everything we do comes from my faith in the Father above to my hands to glorify God. That's what James is saying. We're going to finish it there. But before I do something, I want us to stand up if we can. When we, when we do something in church, oftentimes there's reasons for it. Oftentimes we've just done it because it's what we've always done. But, but often there is a reason. So when someone says, hey, we want to pray. If you want prayer, come to the front. The reason church leaders often will ask you to come to the front is because of this. It puts the faith that God's going to bring you into something into a little minimal, minimal effort of work that says, go out the front where I'm uncomfortable. So I know on, on, um, when, when Adam is here, he will want to minister for people. And what he will ask you to do is to come out the front. Now, is that because out here is more holy than there where you're standing? No, because he's activating the faith into your works when you walk this small journey in front of people to say, I don't care what everyone else thinks, God, I want what you've got for me. So everything we do, when we come and I say, hey, if you want to come and worship out the front, you want to mix something up, then what it's doing is saying, God, I'm uncomfortable, but I want to be comfortable with you and I don't care what it looks like. While we mix up chairs and ask people to sit in different spots because it mixes your faith into your hands to work something. So this is what I'm going to do. I want to pray over all of us, myself included. But I want you to move somewhere different to the spot you're in if you want to activate this. Just for this simple reason, that it changes your faith from your head into your hands. Say, God, I want this. And it's uncomfortable. So, Everyone close your eyes. We don't have any music on. That's okay. Leave it. It's okay. It's good. Makes us all more uncomfortable. <laughs> all right. I'm going to pray because God has given me somewhat of a revelation during this. Not because I'm a guru, but because I want to release what God's working in me, in myself and in all of you. If you want to receive some of that prayer, if you want to receive some of what God's saying, will you now either come to the front or move somewhere that makes you a little bit uncomfortable? You've got 15 seconds and then we're just going to pray. 15 seconds and I'm counting. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Father, we come before you right now, Lord. God, we come before you with our hands open, Lord, with our hearts softened, Jesus. Lord, we want nothing more than you. Jesus, we, this morning, when we sung that song, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, we want to know what that looks like in our lives. 
God, I want to know what that means from my faith to seeing that into my hands to every day living that out, Jesus. God, what does it mean to be so eager to spend hours in your courts? God, what does it mean to go beyond my 15-minute daily reading but be hungry to know you more, to be unable to put your scriptures down because they're changing my life? because I'm seeing more of the glorious King. Lord, what does it look like to rest in your silence and to wait for your voice? Lord, help our faith go into our hands and outwork. Jesus, I pray for every one of us here right now, Lord, that as we go from this place, you start stirring in our hearts what gifts and abilities you've put inside us. You start stirring in who we are, how we can operate in your fullness and see your kingdom come and see your will be done. Lord, I pray that as we go from here, you start encouraging us to not just make this about Sunday morning, not just make this about what can I come to get, but Lord, you start to encourage us into your journey your fullness, that as we see people on the streets, as we see people in our workplace, as we see people in our families and in our homes, Lord, that we start to be encouraged to ooze your kingdom, to express your will, to shout from the rooftops, Jesus, who you are and what you're doing. Lord, set us on fire for you. I come against the spirit of apathy right now in Jesus' name. I break off tiredness right now in Jesus' name. I break off frustration, pains and hurts right now, Jesus, in your beautiful name. That Lord, you said that when we stood and we came into you, that we came in to the things that you did on that cross. That you took those whippings to heal our body that you wore that crown to remove the cloudiness and depression from our heads. So we break those things right now in Jesus' name. And God, we thank you for who you are. We vow right now, Jesus, that when you challenge us from faith into works out of our hands, we will listen. Jesus, we vow right now that we will live our life in the best we can to honor and glorify you. Take from our hearts the things that aren't of you, Jesus. Lord, we declare your kingship in this, in this house. We declare your kingship in this city. We declare your kingship in this nation. You rule and reign over our lives. You have our lives, Lord. We love you and we honor you. If you agree with what I prayed, you can say amen. 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 amen.